Today on Ag News Daily. Cow numbers in Ireland haven't uh, at the moment or something similar to what they were maybe 30 years ago, but production per cow is quite significantly better, so the production in the industry has gone up. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here with you again. Today is Wednesday. Oh, geez, September 19th. Holy cow. It is a rainy day here again in central Iowa. I'm Mike Pearson hosting this episode of Ag News Daily Solo. Delaney is still continuing her trip across Ireland, or I guess her her stop in Ireland. She's just at one location. And uh, if you hit up our Twitter page at Ag News Daily on Twitter, you can see a couple of the videos she's posted of the National Plowing Championships over there in Ireland. I'm, I'm getting pretty excited to debrief her when she gets back and really get a feel for you know what it was like you know i've been to farm progress and i've been to you know a bunch of other farm shows here in the states and i know delaney has as well i wonder how are they different in ireland so stay tuned hopefully we'll have that uh, i don't think we'll get to talk to delaney tomorrow she will be on a plane it's a fairly long flight back but uh, she'll be here on Friday, and I'm sure she will be happy to update us then. In the meantime, we have discussions from Ireland that Delaney has been diligent in uploading. So a little bit later on today in this episode, we will talk Teddy Cashman, who is the chairman for the National Dairy Council in Ireland. So that will be very interesting, and I'm looking forward to hearing it. Hey, speaking of dairy, there's great news for dairy producers. As a lot of our listeners know, something we've talked about with a lot of our analysts on Market Mondays is the challenge facing dairy producers. We just have an overabundance, a tremendous overabundance of fluid milk in this country. Is weighed on prices for the better part of, oh gosh, coming up on two years now. You know, ever since the highs, oh gosh, three years. Since the highs happened in 2014, producers expanded and Americans are just drinking less and less fluid milk. Maybe that's turning around. I don't know. So, listeners, if you're on Twitter early this morning, you may have noticed that both Kylie Jenner and Milk were trending. And the reason why was because Kylie Jenner uh, sent out a tweet that said, uh, let me find it here. So here's what she tweeted. This was uh, last night. She said, tweet, last night I had cereal with milk for the first time. Life changing. And so far, it's got just about 7,000 responses, 19,000 retweets, and 135,000 likes on Twitter. And it has folks talking about dairy. Milk, when I searched milk this afternoon to drop some news, there were stories on Yahoo. There were stories on uh, Google. There were stories every which place was talking milk. Folks, Sometimes getting a celebrity endorsement is what we need to really drive consumption. I got my fingers crossed that maybe Kylie Jenner's tweet, remember she's 19, maybe this is what we need to get that young generation fired up about milk. And, uh, of course, a lot of her responses were people asking her, you know, you need to try almond milk, you need to try oat milk. And there were a fair number of responses that were like, hey, try whole milk. That will blow your mind. And, of course, I am team whole milk, so I'm excited. I hope Kylie takes him up on that. I just thought that was fun. So we got milk in conversation here in the U.S., and we will have milk in conversation over in Ireland a little bit later on. So there's a little lighthearted news to start today's episode before we jump into the bad news. I, I want to touch us off, kick us off here with a recap of 
Hurricane Florence, we've talked about it for the past couple days. President Trump was down there this morning, and he said that North Carolina will have all the help that the U.S. government can provide. They will want for nothing, is how he described it. And it certainly sounds as though that rebuilding process is going to take quite some time. As of right now, a thousand roads in North Carolina are closed due to flooding. There are still a number of rivers that have not yet crested. Most of them are expected to uh, late Thursday into Friday. So this flooding is going to continue, and in fact, it's not yet on uh, at the worst. Um, of course, that hits agriculture. So far in the storm, as best we can tell from various reports, about three and a half million chickens and turkeys and five 5,500 hogs have been killed in the flooding so far. Now, 1.7 million of those chickens were killed at uh, Sanderson Farms. At, they've got 60 independent operators who were hit with the, uh, with the flooding, and they said that that was their total loss. They did say, however, they're nervous looking to the future because a lot of their other farms are on roads that are currently flooded or washed out or otherwise not structurally stable for feed trucks to travel on. And of course, poultry, you know, they use a, a pretty close to just-in-time delivery system for a lot of their feed. And even though growers were proactive, you know, we're coming up on a week now since uh, Hurricane Florence made landfall uh, late last week. So it's it's getting to be toughy. It's, it's getting to be tough. Uh, Sanderson says, you know, we could see additional poultry deaths if those roads aren't reopened here shortly. Uh, Smithfield Foods, of course, has been in the news lately in North Carolina. The slew of $50 million settlements for nuisance uh, that have been settled out there. They said that their plants have suffered no significant damage. However, they are operating at limited capacity, basically because of the roads. Uh, they say as soon as the roads get cleared, they'll be able to expand capacity right back to normal very quickly. So hopefully that is the the news we've got there. As of right now, one hog lagoon, from the environmental perspective, as of now, one hog lagoon had its, uh, its earthen dam breached. We talked about that yesterday. The solids were still in it. Another 25 have had uh, flood water either overtake the lagoon or just the lagoon, because of all the rainfall, rise up and, uh, and overflow a little bit. You know, the damage attributable to those still remains to be seen. However, the EPA also said on Monday that 16 water treatment facilities are unable to supply water and seven, seven public sewage treatment plants are non-operational due to the flooding. And there was also some big flooding at uh, Duke Energy because of their coal ash landfill was breached. And apparently that has just carried a ton of coal ash out into the waterways. So... Over the next, I'm sure, several months, we'll continue to hear about water quality in North Carolina. Uh, you know, and ag is a part of that. Of course, we are utilizers of the environment just as much as waste treatment plants and people and everything else. And uh, I think no matter how aggressive and how prepared growers are, cities are, apparently power companies are, when Mother Nature does her thing, you know, there's only so much you can do. So agriculture, let's not get too defensive. As, uh, as folks, you know, refer back to hog operations here in the ensuing cleanup. But let's also remember not to let them put too much blame on agriculture. Unforeseeable event, of course, uh, terrible, terrible all the way around. As long as we're talking meat, let's jump it over to Tyson Foods. 
On Monday, I didn't get this covered earlier this week, on Monday, Tyson CEO Tom Hayes announced that he is stepping down for personal reasons. Now, management did come out. They said this transition does not affect its full-year guidance. They do not impact, they do not expect any impacts on either their processing capacity or their share price over the rest of the year. But they did announce that Noel White will be assuming the role as CEO. This matters, I think, to a lot of our listeners. Of course, we've talked about the uh, investments that both Tyson and Cargill have made into fake meat, either cell tissue-based, you know, the Petri dish, animal tissue, product, whatever, fake meat, um, as well as the the vegetable, vegetation-based, you know, fake meat. And I think this matters. Noel comes from a background in meat. He was the group president of the Beef, Pork, and International um, at Tyson Foods. International what? I assume meat. Um, at Tyson. So he's got a background. I think he respects animal agriculture. We'll learn more for him after he gets into the role and, and we start to see you know, some announcements come out of that position. And next, we've got some news here in the tech sector. We've talked a lot about blockchain on the podcast. Blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. Of course, that is the root of the cryptocurrency Bitcoin. And there has been a lot of talk, and we've talked about it on the show, when is it going to come into commodities? It seems as though the ability to eliminate some of the counterparty risk that's achievable through blockchain seems to fit really well in an internationally traded and standardized market like commodities. Well... Several banks and trading firms have been out there experimenting with some proprietary blockchain methods to, uh, to trade commodities or finance commodities. But we now have an expectation for the launch of the first blockchain-based platform for the trading of commodities that is open to everybody. Apparently, this platform is going to be called uh, Comgo, K-O-M-G-O. It is run by a venture called Comgo SA, based in Geneva, Switzerland. It's due to go live later this year. And uh, any firm will be allowed to join this. The founding firms are ABN AMRO, PNB Paribus, City, Credit Agricole Group, Gunver, ING, Coke Supply and Trading, Macquarie, Mercuria, MUFG Bank, Nat- Natixis, Natixis, I don't know who they are, Rabobank, Shell, SGS and Society Generale. So these are the companies that have come together. They're backing this. Apparently it is going to replace a mountain of paperwork and eliminate or at least reduce that counterparty risk. Initially, when it gets launched later this year, the very first trades, the very first commodity to be trading on this platform will be crude, as particularly North Sea crude. And early next year, they are looking to widen it into agriculture and metals. And it's going to be working right alongside another firm I'm not that familiar with. Listeners, if you're familiar with this one, let me know. I'd like to learn more about them. I think it's called VACT, V-A-K-T. They're an energy trading platform, and apparently a lot of the same shareholders in Congo are in VACT, which I assume is German with a name like that, but I don't know. So anyway, uh, they're still rolling it out, but it should be going live later this year. It will be fascinating to see what this does. What happens when clearinghouses. How does that work? How is margin going to work in this type of environment? I I don't know. I'm excited. Now we've got the first one rolling out. Should be coming out here before too long. And just one more update on a past story that we have talked about. This one is the Monsanto glyphosate lawsuit that happened in 
California. So now it is formally to announce Bayer has asked the California court to throw out the $289 million judgment against Monsanto for the glyphosate product that, uh, according to the case and according to the jury, caused uh, Mr. Johnson, the landscaper, and his family to suffer cancer. Um, basically, they're alleging that the plaintiff has failed to prove it at the trial that glyphosate caused his cancer cancer and his own counsel mr johnson's counsel and experts admitted that the epidemical epidemiological evidence fell well below the causation standard required under california law uh, essentially it sounds to me like bear is saying hey the jury made their decision not based on the facts presented but based on their preconceived notion of roundup and monsanto and for that reason they're asking the judge to throw out the case, or throw out the judgment, I should say. Again, I'm biased. I wasn't there in the courtroom. It certainly sounds like if their comments here are accurate, if they did not present good epidemiological, you know, science, then I feel as though the court, you know, the judge kind of has a responsibility to throw out the judgment. But we will see. Don't have a timeline. Of course, it is a court case. They are notoriously slow. So we'll just keep an eye on it as it eventually moves forward. Well, that's all the time I want to take up with news today. I want to make sure we've got plenty of time to get Delaney's update on dairy in Ireland. So before we hop over there, let's see what's happening in our markets here on the Chicago Board of Trade and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And remember, folks, our updates on the markets are brought to us by our great friends at the Zaner Group. Give them a call. Harvest is coming. We're thinking of 2019. Let's get aggressive. Let's put some plans in place, and our friends at Zaner can help you do that. Give them a shout at 312-277-0050 or visit their website at zaner.com and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. Looking at the markets down the screen, it is green. Starting with corn, the D's contract up two and a half cents to close at 345 and three quarters. The March also up two and a half, finished the day at 358 even. In soybeans, the Nove contract up 16 cents on the day to close at $8.30. The January up 15 and three quarters to finish at 843 and three quarters. In Chicago, wheat December up 12 cents at 522 and a half. The March up 11 and a quarter to close at 540 and a quarter. Looking over at livestock, we continue to see very dull trade so far in live cattle. Very little cash cattle, or rather no cash cattle has traded yet this week. The October live cattle contract was down 12.5 cents at 113.10. The December unchanged on the day at 117.97.50. Feeders, it's a little movement. It was to the downside. The September contract dropped 30 cents at 155.52.50. The October down 15 cents, closed at 157.87.50. And in lean hogs, mixed trade with the October up 82.5 cents at $60 even. The December down seven and a half cents to close at fifty seven ninety. And with so much chat about dairy in the news, let's see if that did anything for our dairy friends. In class three milk, September contract up a penny at sixteen fourteen, with the October up six cents to close at sixteen twelve. Now let's kick it over to Delaney and hear about dairy over in Ireland. I'm continuing the dairy discussion with Teddy Cashman, who is the chairman for the National Dairy Council. Teddy Tell me a little bit about the National Dairy Council and its role here in Ireland. I suppose we're mostly a, a promotional body for, for consumption of, of, of dairy produce within Ireland and promoting the whole uh, dairy industry and the image of the dairy industry within the, the, the Irish population. We're a farmer-funded body um, where farmers put up their own money to, uh, to fund the promotion of their own industry, have belief in their own, what they're doing in their own industry. That's basically what we do. 
And are you a dairy farmer yourself? Yes, I'm a dairy farmer for the last 32 years or so, as with the previous generations before me in our farm. I'm probably the, the fourth generation on our particular farm as, as a dairy farmer in that period of time. Tell me about the, the different types of dairy farmers. Some produce for manufacturing and some are producing for liquid milk, is that correct? Yes, about 92% of farmers in Ireland are what we call manufacturing producers, which means that they basically produce on a seasonal basis from um, spring right through to, to late autumn and their cows are dried off over the winter period. They're, they're, they're producing for cheese and butter and skimmel powder and whey and different byproducts. Um, and that is the majority of, of the producers in Ireland because of our grass-based milk production. When the grass is growing, they're producing milk. The, the balance then are liquid producers who produce year-round to supply the liquid needs of people in the towns and cities and otherwise. And I'm one of those. When you look at the dairy industry as a whole right now, how does the outlook look for the Irish dairy industry? I would think there's quite a positive outlook in Ireland for the dairy industry in that in, uh, on a couple of fronts really um, I suppose the, there is quite an integration between the, between the um, there's quite an, an integration between the processing sector and the, the, the production sector and that the processing facilities have been put in place for an expansion within our industry and there's a lot of capital has been put up for that and it's ongoing and it's developing in line with, with people's desire to expand within the industry. Cow numbers in Ireland haven't uh, at the moment or something similar to what they were maybe 30 years ago, but production per cow is quite significantly better, so the production from the industry has gone up. Um, we have a good capacity in Ireland to produce grass. Now, this year has been quite a droughty year for us, has been more difficult than the average, but on balance we can produce good quality grass on an ongoing basis, which supports our industry. Um, as the thing from other sectors, from beef or tillage, it's more profitable than beef or tillage, and, and guys are looking at that and looking at options of getting involved in the industry and, and are pursuing those options. There's very good support on the technical side here from our uh, research and development authority in Tagusk, who are doing a lot of good research around the, the types of milk production we're doing and are supporting us through advisory as well for those who are in the business. So we have, an, we, and I suppose as a small country, agriculture is a large part of our economy. So we have a lot, a lot of support from government as well, and they have a good understanding of our industry. So we have a good few things going for us if we want to expand or want to stay in, involved in the industry. Is it common for um, dairy producers to ship their milk or their, their product to a processing facility, or do a lot of farmers process on their own front? Very few process on their own front. So a few small niche cottage industries, but on balance, they go into uh, larger, larger processing sites. By and large, uh, the majority of processing sites in Ireland are cooperative or semi-cooperative owned, uh, which means the farmers themselves have a stake in the business which is processing their milk. Um, and they concentrate on very much on the production of the milk and on high production standards and their processing uh, facilities are, are processing the milk. Now that the standards involved in that have uh, in, improved or increased dramatically over the last 20 years. The newer facilities that are being built these days are being built to the highest international standards suitable for infant formula and other things that, that, have, that, that have very high demands from the point of view of hygiene and quality and consistency of quality in the product and that is being achieved uh, through new technologies and investments and, and, and much higher end um, infrastructure within the processing facilities. When you look at the diet of most dairy cattle, you keep mentioning grazing. Is that a large source for it would the feedstuff? At least 80% of, 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 of uh, the Irish cow's diet would, would, would be grazed grass. Now we have a winter like, uh, like many other countries and we would conserve silage for that period of time and there would be a certain amount of concentrated feed input at different stages, both start and the end of the, end of the season. Um, but the majority is grazed grass. It is cheap for us to do it. 
our climate is conducive towards it. We have the technologies around measuring and managing grass, with, from, as I said, from, the, from our research and development authority. So it, it is, for Irish dairy farmers, the natural thing to do, and, and always has been. And it, it is reflected in, in a lot of our products, particularly in Irish creamery butter, which is uh, a distinctive product based on the, the grass being the, the, the base of the diet of the product in the first place. When you look at the regional or geographic makeup of dairy farmers, is there one part of the country that houses most of the dairy farms, or are they spread out throughout the country? It would be fair to say that Munster and South East Leinster would be the biggest majority of, of the dairy farmers in Ireland. Cork, Tipperary, Kilkenny, Waterford, that area would be, uh, would be very strong. And Limerick would have a very strong concentration of dairy farmers, and a lot of the processing is concentrated on those areas. That isn't to say that they're not spread around the rest of the country as well, and they are uh, in every county in Ireland, really. But some counties are stronger than others. That there's no doubt to say that, particularly in the grass-growing areas in, 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 in the south. The east coast of Ireland is, is a bit drier, but there's a lot of dairy in there also. Some of the west coast is more... Uh, it can be heavier ground and poorer land and can be more difficult to... Uh, and a lot of it's got to do with land structure and fragmentation of land parcels. You need, for, for a grazing dairy scenario, you need a good parcel of land... Uh, what we call the milking platform around where the cows can walk to pasture. So you need to have enough land in the one place to do that. And is most of the milk and milk products being kept within Ireland or being exported to other countries? Oh, um, 85% of what we produce is exported. Uh, Ireland is a, a country of 4 to 5 million people and feeds 35 million people. That's pretty much where it's at from the point of view of dairy. So we're an export. I suppose really we're a sparsely populated country versus our landmass. You know, if you look at us compared to the UK, which is maybe three times the landmass of ours, has um, maybe three times the landmass of ours, but a 60 million people. So that gives you an idea. You know, take France, originally 60, 70 million people, and all those. We're we're, we're sparsely populated in comparison to those versus our landmass. So, what service some of your top exporting countries, the UK, France, Italy, are those? UK probably takes 40% of our produce and um, we would export a lot of cheddar cheese into the UK and that, that is a worry from the point of view of Brexit at the moment as to what impact that it will have on that particular marketplace and that remains to be seen and what agreement will be made and how tariffs will work and otherwise that would probably be one of the biggest um, uh, risks with Brexit from our perspective. Um, Germany, we, produ- we send a lot of high-end butter into Germany. Uh, we export um, milk powders to North Africa and all over Africa. We're sending a lot of infant milk formula to China. Well, probably more ingredients than the actual final product, um, but the 15 to 20% at this stage of the ingredients for milk formula, milk, uh, infant milk formula around the world come from Ireland based on the type of system we have. So we are an exporting country, we're cultivating a lot of markets through a couple of different options with the Irish Dairy Board or Ornua, which is the, our biggest exporting company, which a lot of our, our dairies have exported a lot of their produce through. They're very big in the United States and butter. Uh, Kerrygold brand has, is gaining it's the second biggest branded butter in the, UK, in the US at the moment uh, and growing it's a very distinctive product and uh, we, we're growing markets for other products there as well I uh, know that's not tariff free it is a tariff based product in the States at the moment and I know there's quite a lot of issues going in relation to tariffs in that, that particular scenario at the moment but um, that kind of scene is where we, we've been growing our, 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 our Kerrygold is our biggest um, foreign brand branded product but we would be supplying a lot of ingredients into a lot of companies like the big uh, multinational food companies like Nestle, Danone, Unilever, all those uh, source a lot of their ingredients from Irish dairy and have a lot of, a lot of them like Abbott Laboratories and Danone have uh, large processing sites here where they're bringing in 
concentrated milk products from other plants to, to, to make their own their own produce. It's very impressive what you're doing internationally, but let's talk again about domestically here. How do Irish consumers view the dairy industry? Is it milk a, a necessity in the Irish um, diet? Well, I suppose, how, how, would you, uh, how would you measure that? I suppose is the question, really, you know? And the measure is really consumption. And we have probably Ireland, Finland, and the UK are the highest consumption figures. If you look at the annual consumption of milk, I haven't the figures off the top of my head. Now I can look up the figures for you if you wish. But I, have the hi- I, I, can, I can quite assuredly say that they have the highest consumption figures for, for milk products in, in the EU. So liquid milk is, is very highly consumed in Ireland. Our consumption of cheese is quite high also, and of butter. Butter would be a big product in, in the Irish dairy industry. Now, the question is how are we perceived? Or I suppose the perception we do um, as part of the um, we do a dairy sentiment survey as part of the NDC work every year and according to our survey we're perceived quite well but probably being less well perceived amongst the, the young millennials between um, maybe 18 and 30 and our campaign in the, in the National Dairy Council is very much focused on, on that particular age group and, and we've based on the complete natural we are producing a natural product and we want people to understand that it is a completely natural product there is nothing added you know, it's pasteurized, it is made safe, it is completely natural. And that's what our campaign is based around. Um, and we're very much um, using the digital channels in relation to making that promotion. And you can see around you here today a lot of, the, of what we're doing. We're using bloggers, we're using people who are, who are influencers, we're using sports people, we're using other people who are using dairy in their own daily lives to promote our product. You know, they're not just being paid to promote our product, they have to be users to be, to be on our list. And... Uh, we focus very much on the sports piece. We focus very much on, on the whole healthy living scenario. We would integrate quite a bit with the uh, nutrition and dietitian, dietetics industry here as well. And as you can see outside with the, the, the bone health and the uh, orthopedic industry here as well. So it's kind of giving a full field. But you see, for that particular age group, a lot of it is based around you know free from and you know is this better for me? Is this bad for me? What are my friends doing? Will I look better? Will I look better? So. There are a lot of myths and misconceptions that need to be tackled head-on, and that's what we're doing. That's part of our job. Absolutely. We have a lot of the same misconceptions Mm. in the U.S. Do you have any problems with um, people turning to alternative milk sources like soy milk or almond milk as a replacement? (coughs) Yes, you would would have quite a bit of that. And if you go online, you'll see some of our ads that are kind of countering that from the perspective of what nutrition is in those milks versus our own, you know. But it's a slow burner to try and deal with that, And, and it is... You know, you go to any coffee shop these days, it'll be regular milk and they will always have the option of soy or, or, or almond milk. And then they're, they're, they're big business now. This is becoming big business. As a percentage of the market, maybe they're 4 or 5%, something in that region. But it's definitely the millennial population are the consumers of those. And then we have to deal with that. Um, and look, people's personal choices are the personal choices. You promote your product, you promote the health benefits, you stand over what you believe to be true. And that's the best you can do, you know. Absolutely. And in the, so in the U.S. we have some legislation going right now or discussions about whether or not soy milk and almond milk should be classified as milk. Do you have anything like that going on we in legislation? We don't have a lot of legislation. There is some European legislation um, around the, the almond milk and the soy milk. And, and if it is being used as a pharmaceutical or a, or a cosmetic product, they can call it milk. But if it isn't, they can't. So that there's that piece. Um, soy milk... Uh, I can't remember which can't be used. I can't be. I, I can't remember the, the the one can and one can't. But I, I can't give the direct answer on that one now at the moment. But there is, there is a ban on one being called a milk. Look, in our view, a milk comes from a live animal, and, and uh, um, anything else is is a plant product. You know. Yeah, I think a lot of farmers in the U.S. will agree yeah, with yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
Teddy, what does the next couple of years look like here in the dairy industry in Ireland? I, I suppose really what we're the next couple of years it's the whole issue around how do we deal with the carbon footprint how do we deal with the carbon impact of our business on the general as I said to you earlier we have a sparsely populated island so any increase in the dairy industry looks like an increase in our carbon footprint in Ireland because we don't have a large industry so we're the lowest carbon us in New Zealand are the lowest carbon emitters for producing dairy but if you have an expansion you have uh, uh, and on industrialization is still more carbon so we have to try and square that one that, that, that is a challenge for the future the other challenge is to make sure that our water quality and air quality are maintained and we have responsibility around those also and there's a lot of work being done, done in those areas and for our consumers to understand and, and, and believe in our industry um, and we do believe and I suppose the other point I suppose from a personal perspective I mean farmers uh, are passionate about their industry and work hard at it uh, I take great care for their animals and a very, you know, and for our consumers to understand that, you know, it is more in our in our um, uh, business and personal interests that our animals are, are very well cared for than anybody else. We're we're there at the, at the forefront of that. So there are a number of issues that are there in the future that will need to be addressed. Uh, they are in the pipeline. They are being dealt with. Uh, in the meantime, we still have to keep putting the message out there from the point of view of the quality and the nutrition value of our product. Teddy, I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Delaney, for that update. Really appreciate you taking the time to get out there and work so hard by traveling to Ireland in the summer, the Emerald Isle. You know, that's that's commitment there, folks. That's a commitment to greatness. She's willing to take on the tough tasks. And we appreciate that. But uh, stay tuned. She will be traveling tomorrow. We'll have Delaney back on Friday. We will have a lot more news for you tomorrow. If you have thoughts or stories that we need to be sure to hit, find us. You can check us out on the web at agnewsdaily.com. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook at Agnews Daily. And with that, folks, thanks for listening. I'm going to let you go.